This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. A core belief can be anything that is a critical component that helps us operate in the world. It could be a belief about ourselves, and it could be a belief about someone other than ourselves. Welcome to The Tonic. I'm your host, Jamie Buston, and we're here to talk about your health and wellness. Today, we'll learn about women's healthy hormones. We'll find out why your beliefs are the skeleton keys behind who you are. We'll discuss internal boundaries. And lastly, we'll talk about cooking with alcohol. But first, a little bit of business. Omega Alpha is 100% Canadian-owned and has been GMP-certified for manufacturing to pharmaceutical standards since its inception in 1992. It uses only all-natural herbs, vitamins, and minerals in their formulations. The company is site-licensed for manufacturing nutraceuticals by the Natural Health Products Directorate, a division of Health Canada. They have four company divisions, both a consumer line and professional line of human products, equine pet health products, and a custom manufacturing private label division. Omega Alpha uses only the highest quality ingredients to manufacture the most efficacious yet price-friendly nutraceuticals. For more information about Omega Alpha, visit their website at omegaalphainc.com. Omega Alpha's products are created by their scientific team headed by their owner, operator, and CEO, Dr. Gordon Chang. Dr. Chang holds a PhD in physiology and biomedical engineering from the University of Toronto. He also has two years postdoctoral experience in clinical biochemistry, looking at free radicals and antioxidants. He's published over 20 peer-reviewed articles and conference proceedings, and he's a regular on this show. Welcome back, Gordon. How are you? For having me again. Always a pleasure. So today we're going to be talking a little bit about women's healthy hormones And I know your perspective is, uh, you know, that everything is sort of interconnected and interrelated, yeah? That's correct. I don't believe anything happens in a vacuum. I don't believe that there's a magic fix for anything. But I do know when you go out there amongst the general public, everybody's looking for the magic bullet. Everybody wants something that fixes everything immediately. For example, I use the classic one is weight loss. People put on 20 pounds. It takes them about four or five months to put on 20 pounds, but they want to drop it in one week. And if you had a magic bullet for the 20 pounds in one week, they would want to drop it in one day. 100%. And you know they didn't put it on in one day, so why do they expect to take it off in one day? It's the same thing with, with any type of hormonal issues. As we grow older, men and women, there's a natural fluctuation in the production of hormones in our body. Now, I'm approaching the, the hormonal health of women as an age progression. Yep. Now, there's also other issues with hormonal health, which I probably would just touch upon is, you know, you have people who have something going on in their system that their hormones are not balanced, and they're young people. But I'm talking more about the menopausal issues. Sure. Um, so we're looking at things that will help boost hormone production. Okay. okay. So there are the classic ones that everybody uses are the things like what we call the phytoestrogens coming from plants. Phytoestrogens are one of those things that are, I call them estrogen wannabes. They're not as powerful as the natural estrogens that are produced by the body, but they do have estrogenic effects on the body. So if you are a woman and you're getting older, one of the things is you're not getting enough estrogens. Your body's just not producing enough. So what these phytoestrogens do, they pick up the slack. But 
they're not powerful enough to replace everything. Okay. Mm-hmm. So what you do, um, it, it helps dampen some of the effects of the lack of estrogens. Okay. So your hot flashes and so on. And some of the herbs that people use for that is things like dong quai, which is very, very well known. Right. Mm-hmm. Some people use chase tree berry, and there's a whole bunch of other herbs that people use. Okay. But again, what I'd like to point out is there's no magic fix because along with hormonal issues, people look at their skin and they find as you get older, the skin is not as nice as it used to be when you were 20, yeah. right? That is a reflection of what's happening in your body with the hormones because when the hormones, when you were much younger and you had a full complement of hormones, the skin would be nice. But that's an interaction between the hormones and your, what you're eating. So again, people look at things like they say, well, if I take more collagen, you know, I will have nicer skin. That's true to a certain extent. But again, you could be taking eating collagen till you're blue in the face. You'll never get a skin as nice as when you were 20 or 18. But what you're trying to do is to support the, your body system by adding some of the, the raw materials back into your diet. But what happens is a lot of people just take one ingredient and they stop. And they say, okay, that's it. We don't need anything else. This is the magic bullet. But that could, you know, there's nothing further from the truth because if you take your collagen, right, your collagen still has to, your body still has to take that collagen, break it down into its initial amino acids, and then rebuild it in your system. In order to do that, you need things like trace minerals. So you need things like magnesium is another thing that's helpful, but zinc, copper, manganese. You need all of those things as trace minerals. Right. Then on top of that, you need your vitamin C. So you can see where I'm going with this. Then yeah. It's a long, it could be a long list of things that you need to take. But at the end of the day, I don't want to sound like a downer to say, oh, you know, it's an impossible task. What you're trying to do with this is to take, it's like anything else. When you go out there, you eat, you eat a wide variety of foods. It's the same thing with any type of supplementation program. You take a, a, a wide variety of supplements, and what happens is that they touch many different things at the same time. So if hot flashes is the thing that's giving you the most grief at this point in time, then you focus more so on some of the phytoestrogen-type herbs that will help with the, with the, with the hormonal issues. Right? right. But in the meantime, you still have to worry about the other things. Right, and obviously, you know, the lifestyle choices that you're making are going to impact on your symptomology, right? So if you're not getting a good night's sleep, if you're not active, if you're, as you say, if you're not eating a well-rounded diet, that's going to impact on you as well. That's correct. And I just touched upon a part of the supplementation routine. But then, as you said, there's the other parts where you talk about exercise. If you get some exercise into you, it's great. But another part that people don't even think about is detoxification, sprucing up things like your liver, because the liver... Even though people say we think of the liver as just for detoxification, liver does a lot of things. It manufactures a lot of things, right? Yeah. It manufactures things like cholesterol. It manufactures things like fat and all of those things. And I mean, and I, when you say words like that, everybody thinks, "Oh, it's it's bad. It's bad." No, it's not. It's part and parcel of what it does. What is bad is when it is not under good control anymore. Right. Okay. Oh, no, we need fat, right? Yeah. I mean, like, if, if you didn't have fat, you know, your brain wouldn't function properly. That, that, a lot of things wouldn't function properly. But when people think, though, they want to go to the extreme. Yep. Right? And that's where we run into trouble, when, when we start going to extreme. I always advocate a balanced approach to everything. So let, let's talk, I mean, you mentioned the liver. So if a woman is experiencing hormonal issues, 
and you're saying support the liver, what does that mean practically? Does that mean taking supplements or does that mean a cleanse? It means doing something like a cleanse. Basically, what you're trying to do with the liver is to clean out the liver. And whenever I say clean out the liver, everybody looks at me funny. They say, well, you know what? How are we going to clean out the liver? Are we not going to, we're not going to go in there with a toothbrush and try to scrub out all the nooks and crannies in the liver. No, that's not what we're, trying, what we're talking about. When we say cleanse the liver, what we're trying to do is to say, okay, we know the liver is biochemically very active. And what we're trying to do is to give the liver some raw materials, which basically help protect the liver. And by protect the liver, I'm talking about things like antioxidant support, right? Mm-hmm. And on the natural side of it, we talk about things like milk thistle. That's one of the ones that everybody knows. So that's why I'm sure. mentioning that one. Yep. But there's a whole bunch of them that's out there that, that a lot of people have used. Things like Artemisia, right? You have things like dandelion root. All those things help with the liver, right? And, and that's just touching on it, right? And I know everybody says, which is the best one? Well, you know what? In all fairness, there is no the best one, right? The, the idea is that it's a tr- is to use different ones. So that's why I, I like looking at things that have a complement of different herbs in there, so you're getting a bit of all of the different herbs. Right, because again, depending on what your body chemistry, somebody, some people's body chemistry work, might work well with milk thistle, right? But then there's somebody who who finds that Artemisia works better, and we're not at the point yet where I can wave a magic wand and say, okay, Artemisia works for you, but milk thistle doesn't work that great. You know what I mean? So if you take something that has a wide variety, chances are you will always find something that works for you. If one were to take a liver cleanse to help support hormonal health, would there be a noticeable sort of difference in the way they feel? Or is it just sort of this is something you should do and it's going to work, but it may not manifest in a change in symptomology? It depends on what kind of cleanse you do. You know, as as I always say, there are people who take it to the extreme and they don't feel they're being helped unless they're sitting on the porcelain throne and praying to the porcelain god. Right. right? To me, that's an extreme. To me, I would want a cleanse that's more gentle. Right. But after you've done a cleanse, a lot of people find it more energetic. Their energy levels are higher. Right. And also they find that their skin looks better or feels better. Right. Mm -hmm. But they just want want to do it once and they stop. And I I say to them, no, what you're trying to do is like it's a routine. It's like cleaning your house. Mm -hmm. Right. You don't clean your house once and then call it a quit. Quit and never clean your house again. Right. You sweep your house today. You're going to sweep it tomorrow or the day after, as the case may be, just depending on how many people are in the house. If you have a dog, you're sweeping it every day. Yes, every, you are. Every half an hour. Yeah, right? Yes. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. So this is what you, you know, you have to approach it like in that fashion. It's something, it's a routine thing. It's like exercise. Yep. Right. Mm-hmm. You can't exercise for one day and don't exercise for the rest of the month and say, well, I got my exercise in. No. daily thing. And I think if you keep active and you you, you exercise, you eat well, okay? Uh, when I say eat well, I'm not saying go to the extreme and cut out all red meat and so on and so forth, right? You know, you, you got to eat everything, but everything in moderation. Moderation works for a lot of people. And sometimes when you are symptomatic, you need something to get you over that hump. Right. Right. So, like, I want them to want to say, first thing to say, if I have a headache... Right, I will take two aspirins and I'm good to go, right? Mm-hmm. Because it's short term; it just gets me over the hump. 
Yeah. Right. I don't. I don't have to change my lifestyle because I got a headache. Right. But something like hormonal imbalances, you have to do lifestyle changes. You have to increase your intake of foods that have more phytoestrogens just because you know your body is producing less estrogen. So you need to to, in, to increase your intake of, of supplements with phytoestrogens, right? You need to increase your intake of trace minerals. Yeah, I wanted to talk about that. So I was interested to learn that there is a connection between estrogen deficiencies and mineral deficiencies. Can you sort of explain that? Well, one of the biggest problems with estrogen deficiencies and mineral deficiencies, it's not a direct cause and effect per se. What people don't realize is that a part of the hormones also help with your digestive process and that it helps with the absorption, absorptive effects, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, If you absorb minerals, you absorb vitamins, those vitamins then is used by the body to make the skin better, you know, stop the sag, help you build muscle, etc., right? And if you're absorbing less, this is what happens. But sometimes it's very difficult to increase that absorptive process. And one of the ways to increase the absorptive process is by increasing your intake. So, for example, if normally your body will absorb, I'm, I'm just using a number out of my yeah, head, okay? Yeah, yeah. If normally a, a, a body will absorb, say, 80% of vitamin C, okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, as you get older, instead of 80%, you're absorbing 50%. Well, if I, if I double my intake, my normal intake of vitamin C, even at 50%, I'm going to get enough to do the job. Right. Right. And this is what I'm trying, when we talk about supplementation to increase it. As we get older, we should increase our supplementation. But it's like anything else, you know, old age doesn't just happen overnight. It creeps up on you. And pretty soon you look at yourself in the mirror. How did I get from 20 to 50? That is a compelling question I ask myself every morning, Gordon. And this is what my feeling is. This is what we have to look at to increase our supplementation and eat a lot of fresh foods, fresh vegetables, and get a lot of exercise under our belt. What are EFAs? EFAs are what we call essential fatty acids. Ah. Essential fatty acids, the ones that we focus on are the ones that come from fish. Right. Right. And the EPA and DHA, which is, they call them omega-3s. Yep. Right. Now, you can also get omega-3s from flaxseed plant sources. Mm-hmm. The problem with plant source EFAs is that they don't get incorporated into your cells directly. Right? Uh, whereas the, plant, the EFAs from animals like fish mm-hmm. get incorporated directly. Okay? Mm-hmm. But the body does have the ability to convert EFAs from plant sources into a form which gets absorbed, which you can put into your, your cells directly, be used directly. But it's a biochemical process, and it has certain limitations as to how much can get biochemically converted directly. Now, after having said that, when you take fats from plants, it's not totally wasted. A lot of that also goes into energy production, mm-hmm. right? So generating of ATPs and so on, right? So again, a balanced approach. Well, that makes fantastic sense. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Next month, what do you want to talk about? I think we should talk a little bit about blood sugar levels. What do you think? I think that's a great idea. That was Dr. Gordon Chang. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss why your beliefs are the skeleton keys behind who you are on The Tonic. Valentine's Day isn't the only time to think about your heart. Over 2.4 million Canadians are affected by heart disease. Symptoms such as shortness of breath, chest pains, discomfort in your arms, back, neck, or jaw are not to be ignored. 
Seeking medical assistance is always the safest choice. It could save your life. Don't die of doubt. Don't hesitate. Follow your heart and call 911 at the first sign of heart attack or stroke. Medtronic Canada is committed to alleviating pain, restoring health, and extending life for patients with heart disease. NutriPure is a Canadian woman-owned company since 1989. It specializes in formulating and manufacturing natural health supplements that target specific health problems. It seeks to not only reduce symptoms, but to work on the cause of health conditions in order to regain the body's natural balance. Since its founding, NutriPure has consistently provided a line of products that surpasses the industry standards in terms of efficacy, quality, and purity. It has also made it a point of being there for their customers beyond the product by offering customer service led by their professionals on their social media. Talk to their experts about their fiber formula Intest Fibe or laxative formula Laxatil. And for more information, visit Nutripure.com. This is The Tonic on Zoomer Radio. Combining over 30 years in the field of self-development, Rod McDonald is the CEO of the Certified Coaches Federation, one of the largest coach education companies in the world. And he's a speaker, coach, and author himself. For more information on the Certified Coaches Federation, you can visit CertifiedCoachesFederation.com. Welcome back to the show, my friend. How are you? I'm great, Jamie. How are you doing? I'm doing really well. So for those who heard us last month, we talked about the concept of of learning from failures. And this is sort of a a follow-up discussion. And that sort of centers on core beliefs, right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, this topic is about our core beliefs and what I call the skeleton keys behind who you are. And what I mean by that is, you know, a skeleton key for those of the listeners who may not know what they are, is a key that is kind of like a universal key that opens up many locks. And it might be a little unsettling to think of that. that somebody out there might have a skeleton key like a locksmith, but yeah. that's who you want to have to have those. And we lead most of our lives not realizing what our beliefs actually are and how they actually form our behavior and our identity and who we are when we show up in the world. When you talk about beliefs and core beliefs, let's define that. Are you talking about like what we take for granted, how we view the world? Like what does a core belief mean to you? Well, you know, a core belief can be anything that is a critical component that helps us operate in the world. And it could be a belief about ourselves, Mm -hmm. and it could be a belief about someone other than ourselves. So it could be another person, such as our spouse or family member. It could be a broader group, like our entire family, or it could be an entire, you know, cultural group or some other group formed by nationality or anything, really. You could say, you know, all people who have pink hair are, you know, fill in the blank. And those core beliefs sometimes also called global beliefs by some folks, is just this notion that they often operate at a subconscious level and stimulate a certain type of behavior, not always kind of behavior that benefits us, and sometimes sabotages us. And until we decide what we want our core beliefs to be, we may be sort of a slave to them in a sense, instead of actually looking at them choosing what our core beliefs might be and actually living the kind of life we want to have. Right. So I think like what I'm hearing from you, it's these are the guiding principles, right? This is how we view our environment and the people that are populate our environment, whether they're work associates, family, friends, our interactions with them are guided by the way we view, I guess, the universe, right? Yeah, to an extent. I mean, and certainly we can go up to that higher level. 
but it starts with as simple a question as, you know, who am I and what do I believe about myself? And the simple sort of fill in the blanks would be, I am, and then you have someone fill in the blank for that, I am, and they might say something like smart, sexy, or they might say things like stupid, a loser, you know, things like that. And sometimes, like I said, we don't acknowledge them consciously. And then if we were to explore other people like, you know, your family is, you know, and you fill in the blank, could be awesome, could be a burden, could be any number of different things like that. And then we could even look at things that are inanimate, if you will. So technology is fill in the blank, you know, technology is frustrating, technology is fantastic, technology is, you know, a drag on society. So if we were to ask ourselves these questions, we might actually reveal things about ourselves that we didn't even realize. And the key to this kind of an exercise is to not just stop at the first answer. What's fascinating to me, what I found when I use this exercise with my clients, is to ask the question either exactly the same way or slightly differently, probably about 5 to 10 to 15 times. And it's amazing to see how people peel back the layers from the answers that they think they should say to the answers that they really believe. So when you're performing this exercise, this is interesting to me. I'm, I'm gonna, we're going to diverge from the topic for a bit. Do you believe there's an objective truth to this or is it subjective to the individual? Like in other words, when, when you're undertaking this exercise, are we, are we looking for false notions or is there such an idea as a false notion? Well, it depends. I wouldn't look at it as true or false as much as does that belief serve you or does it hinder you? Because if a belief is hindering you, whether it's in a relationship or in your happiness or in a job or something, then maybe it's time to question whether or not you should keep that belief. So it's a means to an end sort of thing. So like if the ends, so if you're achieving levels of success, you're, you know, you're behaving appropriately, your relationships are good, your work is good, then presumably the core beliefs that are driving it are positive and worth keeping. Yeah, in all likelihood, because generally speaking, it's a little bit like having multiple rudders, if you will. So if you were on the tumultuous you know, up and down of the ocean with the wind blowing and the currents pushing and pulling. And if you can, you know, point your sails in the right direction and turn your rudder in the right direction, then you can actually, even in a harsh storm, you can go in the direction that you want. And without those, you know, those the sail and the rudder pointing in the right direction, then you're going to be subject to whatever, you know, and wherever the, the weather pushes you. So that's the analogy of the metaphor for your life is that your beliefs will give you that opportunity to adjust to your circumstances, to your context, and make the best choices possible, especially in the most difficult situations. So you said something interesting a moment ago about sort of peeling back the layers where people give you answers that they think they, you know, that they that you want to hear, and then you get to the core truths. Are most people sort of cognizant or aware or able to articulate what their real beliefs are? Not often if they try to do it on their own. It does take a real amount of honesty that a lot of people aren't comfortable with. But with support, say from a coach, to ask these questions, to write down the answers, and to allow the client to just sort of free flow with the answers, it's pretty interesting what happens. So I'll, I'll give you a brief example sure. with something that is, you know, pretty, it's everybody needs it and wants it, and people have different feelings about it, which is money. Mm-hmm. So, you know, people have quite different views on money. 
And if you were to ask someone, you know, what is money? And they were to ask, well, money is, and they might say something like, money's great. You know, money's something I, you know, buy my dinner with. Money's something I buy myself presents with. And if you keep asking the question, you know, and what else is money? And what else is money? And you, you keep trying to peel back the layers. You'll often get, you know, the first three or four answers being standard kind of answers. And then you ask a slightly different question, like, what is money really? And that shifts the thinking a little bit. And often you'll get a slightly different answer. And you can ask questions like, what is having money? And then you get answers. And what is not having money? What often comes up with that is answers like, well, money's dirty or money is evil or you're, you know, not having money means you're a good person, which I've heard from business people actually say. And when they say things like that, what it reveals is they have what I call an allergy to money. If they think money is evil and you have to be evil to have money, then obviously there's some programming there that they'll need to resolve to be able to accept or welcome money into their business. Hmm. So is everybody capable of changing beliefs or are we all able to, I'm thinking like as we get older, it must be harder to make those fundamental changes. Yes and no. So it's interesting because, and this goes back to the topic we we had last month about failure and how, you know, when we're younger, we're sometimes more stubborn about how we look at things. And that's true. And then usually from about age 30, 35, all the way up to about, you know, probably about 50 or so, we tend to be fairly flexible, and then we get more rigid again. Hmm. Now, there are certainly exceptions to that. But the key is, you know, what's the what's the desire behind the change? You know, is it, you know, that there's a crisis that has to be resolved? Is it a next level of living that the person wants? How badly do they want the outcome? And therefore, how hard are they willing to work on, you know, what's behind what's driving them? Because it will definitely make a difference to them if they can identify and clean up their beliefs. It's a little bit like having an old computer that you haven't defragmented or, you know, put a virus program through in a while that oftentimes there's conflicts, there's issues and, you know, things where your computer just crashes or whatnot. And if you don't maintain your beliefs, and in this case sort of the, the metaphor for the software and operating system and so on, then you're inevitably going to have these issues show up. And so actually paying attention to it and putting a little bit of regular work to it can be phenomenally helpful to helping somebody actually make uh, accelerated progress to their goals. So given what you've said and sort of the rigidity that may creep in as we, you know, as we're north of 50, are there finite limits to our our ability to change our beliefs? Like, are are you an eternal optimist? Do you believe we're all capable of, of change forever? I am. I don't know if I'd call it an optimist. In a weird way, I would call myself a realist because I do believe that the human spirit and, you know, from a neurobiological standpoint, the human brain is capable of change. And so if we aren't living the life that we want and we're willing to do the work, then I believe that we can make change at any point in our lives. So we're physiologically capable of doing it. But it ain't an easy task, I think is what you're saying. Like, we have to work at it. We have to want it. You know, we have to be prepared to make those difficult changes and decisions. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely, because we are, we are creatures of habit. And so if we've lived a certain way with certain beliefs for a very long time, let's say 30, 40, 50 years, for us to change that, it's a little bit like the, the ruts in a road. Yeah. 
you know, if they're really deep, it's really hard to get out of them if you're trying to get out of them. And so it takes work, but it's not impossible. In fact, it's very possible if the motivation is strong enough. And that, you know, for better or worse, that happens sometimes when there's a major life change, such as, such as the loss of a loved one, uh, a health crisis, a breakup of a relationship, loss of a job, whatever the case may be, that forces us, almost shocks us into this awakening of, you know, who am I and, and how have I been living? And, you know, do I have an opportunity to change it from this point forward? Well, that's fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Will you come again soon? Absolutely. Pleasure to be here, Jamie. Fantastic. We have to take a short break, but we'll be right back on The Tonic. The Tonic is brought to you by Purely Natural. Their liquid greens chlorophyll is the only line of soluble, grit-free, and great-tasting greens on the market. Liquid greens can easily be mixed with your favorite drink to provide a sustained natural boost of energy to help you get through your day. There's unflavored, which is great with orange juice. The mint flavor is cool and refreshing. Dark chocolate has all the health benefits of a salad, but with a great chocolate taste. And for that extra detox boost, try activated charcoal and mint. Enjoy the energy. Enjoy the detox. Enjoy the great taste. Purely natural liquid greens. Jack Nathan Health offers Canadians convenient care with 74 multidisciplinary clinics located within Walmart stores. The largest ever Jack Nathan Health Medical Center is now open in Vaughan, Ontario at 8300 Highway 27. The new 8300 square foot clinic offers integrated services for the whole family, including family medicine, physiotherapy and chiropractic, chronic pain management, massage and a registered dietitian. There's also an on-site Dynacare blood laboratory plus same-day referrals, walk-in appointments, and a new annual health assessment option. Jack Nathan Health is a one-stop shop for proactive health management. For more information, visit jacknathanhealth.com. You're listening to The Tonic on Sumer Radio. Tracy Sagrati has an eclectic background in molecular biology, psychology, and nursing. She practices psychotherapy and yoga therapy and has over 20 years experience in leading classes, workshops, and events. She believes that the tools of mindfulness pave the way for a deeply meaningful life at any stage. And you can find her at SogratiYoga.com, Yoga on Facebook, or at Tracy Sograti on Instagram. Welcome back to the show. How are you? I'm so great, Jamie, and I'm, I'm really excited to talk about our discussion today. What are we talking about? What are, what are we going to cover? We're going to cover the mindfulness of internal boundaries. Wow. That sounds like heady stuff. Doesn't it? Where are we going to start? Well, I think we should start with why am I making this distinction around internal? Yeah. And maybe uh, what are boundaries in the first place, sure. especially for our listeners who aren't sure. Or hosts um, who don't have any boundaries. There you go. <laughs> So, okay, so boundaries are basically limits. I think that's yeah. the easiest way sure. to say it. Would you agree? I would agree. Yeah, so it's it's just limits that we set, and those limits, ideally what those limits allow us to do is to be in healthy connection. And that healthy connection could be a connection with ourselves or a connection with other people. Mm-hmm. And when I make the distinction between internal and external, uh, because I want to break this discussion up, it's so rich, I really advise that people start working on their internal boundaries first. And they're sort of the mechanism through which we train our attention and our awareness. Okay. Right? And 
it's really about keeping you safe, right? So if you're looking at your internal boundaries, it's about keeping you safe from your own maladaptive thinking patterns or maladaptive belief systems, things like intrusive thoughts, like these thoughts that pop into your head that you can't make go away. Yep. Uh, rumination, where you're sort of thinking about a past situation over and over, and even when you're trying not to think about it, like it's just invading your mind. Yep. Or even things like anxious fantasy, where you're sort of creating these elaborate fantasies about the future that are, that are kind of threatening. Yeah, I mean, like all this resonates with me. I, I would mm-hmm. say my issues stem from internal boundaries as opposed to external boundaries. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. And you know what? I would agree, like knowing you personally, I would absolutely agree with that. And You know, I I just want to add that I believe that even if someone struggles with external boundaries, which we're going to get to, you know, maybe next month, fingers crossed, but even if someone struggles with external boundaries, internal boundaries are always the place to start because ultimately you're living with your mind every day Mm -hmm. and you can never get away from it. You can set all kinds of boundaries with the other people in your life, but you're in your head all day long, as long as you're awake. So I think it's the most critical place to start. How does this relate to our practice of mindfulness? Mindfulness is the most important foundational ingredient for internal boundaries. And I can't say that enough. So at its heart, mindfulness is essentially uh, placing our awareness with intention in the present moment. So it's just having control over what you pay attention to. That's all it is. Okay. Right? Yeah. And it's like building a muscle over time. And if any person doesn't have the capacity to be aware, which means to be able to stand back, look at your thoughts, look at your feelings, notice your sensations from a distance, then it's impossible to set internal boundaries. You're fused with your thoughts so much that you, you can't even see that you can set a boundary. So mindfulness is the necessary ingredient. Without it, you can't even set the boundary. Yeah, and I I understand why you're saying we need to start with the internal boundaries because I'm not suggesting it's easier to do so, but but it's it's, it's literally within us as opposed to external boundaries where fundamentally you're going to be dealing with others, right? Which is out of your control. So, So because this is all within our control, if we can master this, I think it would help you mastering the other. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And, you know, I think the other thing that I would just riff off what you're saying, just to to add another piece to it, is that often what's happening in our mind, like sometimes we have an accurate perception of reality. And sometimes we don't. And I think that's a fair statement. Mm -hmm. And without being able to set those internal boundaries, you don't have the distinction between what's accurate and what's not. Mm -hmm. So then... If you translate that into how you're relating to other people, well, if you're not quite aware of what's accurate versus what isn't, then you're not going to set accurate external boundaries. That makes sense. How do we know if we need to set an internal boundary? Like, like what should be triggering this? If you're a human. <laughs> okay, that's, all right, check. <laughs> check. What's next? Okay, so the second piece is you notice that you become fused with your thoughts. Yeah. Okay. Some examples of this are you notice suddenly that you've lost track of time. Okay? You don't remember what you were doing because you were lost in your mind. That's a, that's a great cue for you that y- you know, your mind is kind of running and you're fused with, with what's happening in your mind. Mm-hmm. You believe that your thoughts are facts. Okay, but they are. <laughs> <laughs> this is why we're having this discussion. I know, right I'm, I'm just joking. <laughs> I know, I know. You believe that all of your feelings represent something that's actually true. Yeah. Okay, so feelings are just feelings. They're not necessarily representative of reality. 
tend to ruminate over things that have happened in the past. Yep. So it could be, um, you know, a bad business deal. It could be something that happened in your family of origin. It could be a fight you've had with your spouse last week, right? And you're kind of going over it and over it and over it, even though it's long past. My favorite is high school humiliations. That's <laughs> that's my that's my go-to rumination. I, I relive those experiences over and over and over again. Yep. Really? I don't want to. No, I'm not. I'm not saying I want to. I'm saying yeah. this is what pops into my head. That's all. That's what pops into your head. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. You really need to set a boundary around that, my friend. I know. Okay. So you tend to visualize hypothetical things happening in the future. Yep. And you know, what goes along with that is that you have on some level, you believe that worrying will help you be more, more prepared for threats. And that's kind of, I mean, that's something we might have to unpack in another show. You notice that you're bothered by intrusive or repetitive thoughts. So that might come up, say, if you're trying to focus on something for work or yeah. just, just any where you're trying to focus your attention and you notice you just can't keep it oriented towards one thing. You might notice also that you become dysregulated or have trouble coping because your thoughts are impacting your feelings, which are impacting your behavior. Mm-hmm. So let me just give you a couple of examples because I, I find it's just easier to understand. So say you have a thought, I'm not capable of succeeding. That can translate into feeling sort of insecure or hopeless. Yep. And then that might change your behavior. So you might not try for a job. You might not try for admission to a program. You might not try to get a date with somebody. Yep. And that would then reinforce the thought. Yeah, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy if you're allowed exactly. to. Yep. One that comes up with, say, codependence is, say, we're in a relationship. If she's unhappy, it's my fault. Equals feeling insecure or over-responsible. And that can lead to behavior like pleasing behaviors or excessive yes behaviors. So these are all signs, and there are many more, but this is a good chunk of examples to let you know that an internal boundary is really important. All right. Now that we've identified the mm-hmm. issue, yeah. maybe we can go over how mindfulness can help us. Yeah. So what's the how? So first, we all have to come into a place of acceptance. And the acceptance is that your mind's a wily beast. Yep. Okay. So no one is immune to needing to train it. We all have to train it. And in fact, I believe, and this pans out in the research, we can really thrive by continuing to train our brain over the lifespan. So it doesn't matter how old you are, you can always build this skill. The next thing that I really recommend people do is take a week and keep a thought diary. And um, if you're listening, please grab a pen and write this down. And it just involves writing down your thoughts a few times a day. And, And there's a distinction here between thoughts and feelings. Okay, so you write down your thoughts, then your feelings in conjunction to the thought you're having. And then what happens to your body? So you're starting to step back and build your awareness, your mindful awareness of the fact that your thoughts affect your feelings, which then affect what happens in your body, which is then going to impact your behavior. Can you give an example of what is a thought versus what is a feeling? Let me just appeal to your intellect first. With a thought, there's a lot more verbiage around it. So if I have a thought about something, I use more words to try and explain it. If I have a feeling, it's usually, it's more discreet. So I'm scared. Right. Or this concerns me or it makes mm-hmm. me mad. Or, yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah, I'm okay. angry. Cool. I'm scared. So that's yeah. more of a feeling. Um, yeah. If I have a thought, the thought might be, if I'm not perfect, everyone's going to judge me. They're going to think I'm not good enough. That's a thought. Okay. 
Okay. Yep. The next thing to do is to really start notice, like once you can pick out like what's a thought versus what's a feeling is to start to notice which are skillful thoughts and which are unskillful. Mm-hmm. And notice I'm not saying bad or good here. Just what's actually helping you and what's harming you. Mm-hmm. And this is dynamic. It's going to change over time. So you, you have to be aware of that. And you can do that exercise for about a week, mm-hmm. okay? a week to two weeks. Then the next step is to set a boundary in your mind. Right? So when you notice that you are having one of the unskillful thoughts, there are a few things you can do. Number one is anchor to the present moment when you're spinning out of control. And this means to really stop yourself from jumping down the rabbit hole. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I do this with my clients by getting them to visualize a neutral object. So uh, for me, it's a tree. You could also focus on your breath or your body because your body lives in the present moment. You could splash your face with very cold water. That's another technique. It takes about 30 to 60 seconds to work, but literally go to the bathroom, splash your face with ice cold water. The next thing is to do vigorous exercise. Yeah, that actually helps me a great deal. Does it? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Like what do you do? What kinds of things? I do like marathon rows, stuff like that. Yeah. Like, you know, like where I have to focus, there's a mental aspect to what I'm doing because, because it's going on for a while. And that allows me to empty my mind of all other thoughts. Cause I I can't think about anything else and keep pace and do the work. Exactly. Exactly. And that's called taking over the processing tunnel of the mind. That's exactly what you're doing. You're not letting anything else in. And, you know, I would say, aside from those pieces, the final thing is to create a worry time. Every time an intrusive thought arises, you just save it for that worry time. And that's a way to start to set the internal boundary. So the thought comes up, and you just go, okay, my worry time today is from 4 till 4.15, and you parking lot it until then, and that's when you attend to it. Fantastic advice. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. We're going to get to external boundaries next month. I can't wait. Please. Thank- fantastic. That was Tracy Sograti. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss cooking with alcohol on The Tonic. The Big Carrot is a worker-owned natural food market that's been committed to local, organic, non-GMO, and sustainable food systems since 1983. They're a one-stop shop offering produce, grocery, bulk, body care, and holistic dispensary. The juice and smoothie bars and kitchens serve up hundreds of healthy dishes and drinks daily. Building community is at the core of their vision, which they deliver through education, outreach, and giving. They want everyone to share in the goodness they offer. Visit their website for more information at thebigcarrot.ca. This is The Tonic on Zoomer Radio. Carolyn Tanner Cohen is the owner and founder of Delicious Dish Cooking School in Toronto. She's been teaching cooking classes for 17 years. She has a science background which edifies her interest in health and fueling the body with foods that optimize health. Carolyn teaches people how to meal plan, eat healthy, cook with natural whole foods, and organize their kitchen. She teaches new cooks, seasoned cooks, university students who are living on their own for the first time, nannies, housekeepers, and everyone in between. For more information about Carolyn, you can always visit deliciousdish.ca. Welcome back to the show. How are you? Hi, Jamie. I'm very well. Thank you. How are you? Good. I'm sober. (laughs) Dry Feb or whatever that is. Yeah, well, you know, I'm just, I try not to drink when I'm doing the show, but you know, we are... You're talking about during the show. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Oh, okay. Yeah, but today we're going to talk about alcohol as it may pertain to cooking and, and specifically cooking with wine. Yes, let's do it. You know, it's really mysterious for a lot of people. 
and I think it's very worthy of a few minutes. All right. Well, we have okay. a few minutes happily. Okay, great. <laughs> so, why would somebody want to cook with wine? Okay. So, first of all, wine brings out the flavors in the dish. It's kind of like salt. It's a flavor enhancer. And I could get into a bit of a science if you want to hear about that, but we don't necessarily need to. But think of wine as a spice. But remember that the flavor of the wine mellows the longer you cook with it. Right. Okay? And and the key is, you know, hmm, not everybody drinks. Some people avoid it. But that shouldn't necessarily be an impediment to using wine in your cooking. But you have to be mindful that you have to cook the alcohol out. And that's the key, right? Yes, you do. But remember, just to sort of, if I forget to say this later on, mm-hmm. not all the alcohol actually gets cooked out. But there's a few rules about that. And the longer you cook it, the more it gets cooked out. And the earlier you add it to a dish, the more alcohol gets cooked out. But even a very, very long cooking, you could be left with about 10% of the alcohol. Right. But, you know, unless you're cooking with manic amounts of wine, then it won't matter. not enough to impact somebody's Absolutely. sobriety, right? Yeah. Yeah, so there's a few ground rules, and once you know them, you'll likely be adding wine to a lot of your favorite dishes. Okay, so so what are those ground rules? So wine adds acidity to a dish, just like lemon juice or vinegar. But because it contains alcohol, you want to add it at the, mostly, not always, but you want to add it at the start of the cooking so the alcohol has a chance to burn off. You don't want to add it to the end of a dish for several reasons, but mostly because it adds a funky, chalky taste to the end of a dish. There are exceptions, and I definitely will get into that, but have you ever had warm wine? Like you go to a restaurant, it's a really hot summer, and you have warm wine. It just, it tastes funny, and it accentuates the acidity in the wine. So the same thing will happen if you add it towards the end rather than the beginning. Yeah, I mean, some wines are supposed to be served warmer or colder than others, but it's true. Like when they talk about the notes of a wine, for example, if they say it has a barnyard note, well, if you're drinking it at a warmer temperature, that is exactly (laughs) what is going to come through. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing is like you have to kind of understand alcohol in and that. So like you can't just add it in. So, for example, if you were going to add it to ice cream, the net effect might be delicious, but because you are not, you know, if you added it at the end, what you're doing is you're preventing your ice cream from freezing properly. So it has some properties to it that you have to be aware of. Yes. I have a few criteria. Okay. So what are your, what are your criteria? Okay. So first of all, let me say this. If you won't drink it, don't cook with it. Okay. It's not like, oh, I'm going to buy this really crappy wine because I'm going to cook with it. So don't, and That brings me to the other thing is don't buy cooking wine or cooking sherry from the grocery store. It has a lot of added stuff like salt and other preservatives that's not normally in drinking wine. They put it there so it's shelf-stable, but it tastes less than desirable. So let's not use that. Now, adding crappy wine to a dish that you're investing time and money into will will not improve the quality of the wine. It'll actually accentuate the crappy flavor of that wine. So don't use that. So cook with something that you would like to drink and ideally whose flavors tie in well with the dish. Okay? Mm -hmm. Now, not everyone is so well-versed in wine that they're able to pair the flavors with the food they're doing. So I have a few basic rules and guidelines. Okay? So heat kills the very, very subtle flavors of the wine and the very complex flavors. So if you have a really expensive wine with very, very subtle flavors... I wouldn't go nuts and cook with that because you're going to lose that because the heat kills the minutiae of the flavor. Conversely, as I said before, don't cook with the crappy stuff either because it's not going to kill off that crappy taste. So how do you decide which alcohol 
or which wine to use. So in general, when you cook something down, you concentrate the flavor. So same thing happens with the wine. You evaporate most of the alcohol, and the flavors of the wine concentrate. Again, you lose some of the nuances, but you concentrate the flavors. So what works best is our bright, fruity notes work best in both in the reds and whites and rosés. Okay, so let's get into the details. Okay, so white wine, if you're using white, and this, these are my ground rules, okay, use a dry white wine with a higher acidity, such as a Sauvignon Blanc or a Pinot Grigio or even a dry sparkling wine. But a more like oaky white, such as a Chardonnay, lower in acid, when reduced, will turn a little bit bitter. Okay, so stick with the brighter ones. Okay, mm-hmm. yep. now vermouth. You know, I have talked about vermouth in the past. Yep. Vermouth is a fortified wine, but it's amazing because it has a long shelf life, which is something that's really appealing to me because I'm not a white wine drinker. Yeah, neither so I don't I. always have an open bottle of white wine. Yeah, let, let's digress for a minute. If yeah. people are cooking with wine, an idea is like if you don't want to open up, like people are reluctant to do it because yeah. they don't want to take like a $20, $30 bottle of wine, open it to maybe get a half a cup of wine to deglaze a pan. And then what do they do with it? It sits in the fridge and then they're worried, you know, how long can I keep it in the fridge? One idea is, you know, if you think you're not going to need the whole bottle to drink with your meal, why not cook with the wine that you're going to drink? So if you only need a small amount, open it because it'll give it an opportunity to breathe. You cook with it and then there's no wastage. That's option number one. But yes, I, I, I do cook with vermouth because you can store it not in the fridge. It will remain on your shelf even after you open it. Yeah. But if you want it to last even longer, though, you can put it in your fridge. It'll last a year. Yeah. I mean, I've left it. You know, I constantly have vermouth in the house for the purpose of cooking rather than mixing. Yeah, same. And, you know, it's my go-to with pretty much every application where there's a deglaze. Yes, I agree with you, especially with fish. It has like spicy notes and herbally notes. So you want to make sure that you pair it with something savory as opposed to something sweet, for me anyway. No, 100%. You also have to remember that it has a higher alcohol content than wine. So you got to make sure you cook that off if you care. Okay. Yep. The other thing is back to the not wasting the bottle. Because I'm not such a big white wine drinker, I buy those small bottles from uh, the liquor store, and they're either a cup or a cup and a half, mm-hmm. and 250 or somewhere in that in that size, and they're great. I leave them uh, I leave them in my pantry, and it's a pantry staple for me. So let's just touch on red wine. So the same thing goes. You want to use a wine that has a moderate or low tannins, such as a Merlot or a Pinot Noir or a Sangiovese or something even like even a lighter Cabernet. You don't want to use that super full-bodied, big cab or Syrah or Barolo. It'll just leave a chalky taste in the end of your overall cooking. Yeah, I would add, you know, like if you have a, a kind of understanding of the dish, like where it's from, and I don't mean it as simple, oh, I'm cooking spaghetti, that's Italian. But like, if you right. know the region where the food, the dish you're making is from, you might, you know, spend a few minutes on the internet looking up types of wines that are served there and you can cook with those wines and they will for almost sure. always work and pair beautifully with the ingredients that you're looking with. Yeah, looking for. that's absolutely true for sure. Like after you've made these wine selections and how do you use your wine when you're cooking? Okay, that's a great question. So there's a few ways that I use it. So for me, I have sort of like a cheat sheet, okay? Mm -hmm. So if I'm doing something like a stew or a braise or a long cooking tomato-based sauce, like a meat sauce or even a tomato sauce, I like to add the wine early. So I add it after the aromatics. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And after I, and if I'm using meat, I'll add it after I've ground the meat. So I add my onions, my garlic, I brown my meat, I take the meat out or not, and then I let the wine reduce. And then I add the other liquids like tomatoes or stock. Mm-hmm. Okay? Yep. For a pan sauce, and I think you do this a lot, we've had these conversations, and this is probably your nightly vermouth application, but for pan sauces, you want to add the wine after you've set your meat or fish to rest, okay? So you sear the scallops, you sear the shrimp, or your steak, or whatever it might be, and then remove it, and then you reduce the wine to a syrupy consistency, and you scrape up all those brown bits or deglaze your pan. I call it removing the schmutz from the bottom of the pan, but that's just me. And then you add any of your other liquids, such as cream or stock or lemon juice or whatever you want. Then, of course, you could always fortify it and add a bit of butter if you want after that but you want to add the wine as your first go of liquid yeah i i would add don't freestyle with wine if your recipe doesn't call for it you can't just put it in unless you have a really good understanding of the role that the wine is playing in whatever it is you're putting in True. But just because you like wine doesn't mean that it goes in what it is you're cooking though i will say that that is true but if you're making something in a fry pan like a, or a cast iron fry pan then you pull that steak or fish out you could likely deglaze with about a half a cup of wine. Yeah, no, I'm not talking about deglazing. Oh. As a flavoring agent, because you, you kind of said, you know, it adds spice, it does this, it does that. Yeah, oh, that's, yes. That's true, but unless you know how to handle the alcohol content with it, you, you may not get the results that you're looking for. Right, that's very true. Okay, so we have time for one more question. Okay. And that is, sure. let's say you had a recipe that did call for alcohol, yep. but for whatever reason, you don't want to use alcohol in that recipe. What can you replace it with? it? okay. So I replace alcohol with apple cider vinegar mm-hmm. in the same amount as wine. I know that sounds a little odd, but I've done that before. Chicken broth, so you really, really don't want to add the wine. It'll add depth of flavor as opposed to water and the liquid that you might need. And you should put the same amount in and then let it reduce a little bit. Right. You can deglaze with a, with a stock just as well as you could with a wine. Exactly. Anything liquid. Apple juice is a great substitute, mm-hmm. but it is sweeter than a white wine. So you want to add a bit of lemon juice if you're going to do that just to break up some of the sweetness. And the same thing goes for a grape juice, like a white grape juice. Add a little lemon. And the last thing is, what's, the last one I do sometimes, actually I have two more, is a white wine vinegar. You could replace for a dry white wine, but just use 50% of the amount of wine you would use plus 50% of water. So mix it. Yeah. So the harsher, okay. the harsher the vinegar, you're going to have to water it down. Like the two, yeah. the, the two that you mentioned, white wine vinegar and apple cider vinegar tend to be on the mellow side. Yeah. So that's how you can get away with it. Yeah. What's nice too, Jamie, is ginger ale. If he's ever cooked with that, no, oh, that no. really works too. It adds a bit of a flavor, but you got to know that it is adds, it's going to add a bit of a ginger flavor. But it is, and you'll use that in equal amounts of your wine. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show and explaining all about cooking with wine. You're very welcome. It was nice to talk to you. Thanks to all my wonderful guests, Dr. Gordon Chang, Rod McDonald, Tracy Silgrady, and Carolyn Tanner Cohen. And thank you all for listening to The Tonic. You can listen or download this episode as a podcast with full show notes, contact information for our guests, and links at thetonic.ca. To find out more about the show, you can follow us on The Tonic Talk Show on Instagram or Facebook. For great articles written by amazing health and wellness writers, be sure to pick up your copy of Tonic Magazine. The March-April issue is now available free on racks at over 100 locations across the GTA and delivered with the Globe and Mail to every home subscriber in Toronto, west of Victoria Park. Or you can visit our website, tonictoronto.com. If you're interested in providing feedback or suggesting topics for the show, you can always email me at jamie at 
Next week on the show, we'll discuss the treatment of frozen shoulders, yoga nidra, and all about umami. Until then, this is Jamie Busson wishing you a healthy and happy week. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.